Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Nomad Outdoor. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where the host and guests discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience as a field, and share our members' stories. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Turkey Call All Access podcast, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Nomad Outdoor. Welcome to that big spot. Appreciate the support from our good friends at Nomad Outdoor. Tip of the cap. Thank you all. Guys, this is episode 25. It is a three-parter. This is it. I've been teasing it for weeks uh, since we got back from Asheville, North Carolina, the beginning of June from the 12th National Wild Turkey Symposium. We're bringing in the brightest and smartest minds in wild turkey conservation and research. This week's episode, and we're going to run these three consecutive Thursdays, so you're not going to have to drag this out over six weeks. This is this is coming to you so you get the most current information as it's available uh, from the mouths of the researchers themselves. So on this installment, guys, we're going to introduce you to, if you don't know him, Zach Danks from the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, talking about COVID and its effects on spring turkey hunting. We're going to bring you Adam Butler from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks, uh, talking about uh, research and study that was done on the effectiveness of gear. That really interesting one there. You're going to want to definitely hang out for that one. Then we welcome in our co-CEO, Becky Humphreys, in a, in a talk with uh, Cus Strickland from Mossy Oak. Uh, all of those three are going to be, uh, you're going to hear me. Uh, dabbled in there and then uh, our national director of conservation services mark hatfield uh, moderates those first three uh, sets there so you'll be hearing a lot from mark and uh, just really great stuff there uh, with those first three and then uh, we're going to round this episode out with uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, University of Georgia, uh, the Wild Turkey Doc, and from LSU, Dr. Brett Collier, uh, affectionately known Dr. Shortspur on the social. You're going to hear from all of those folks this week, guys, answering questions, discussing their research specific to parts of the country, different focuses. Uh, but ultimately, I think over the next three weeks, you're going to get some questions answered, at least in so far as. You know, you're going to hear from the experts when we say trust the science. So this is, uh, I think, a really important, really awesome uh, nerd out here um, that I think will hopefully uh, aid to some of the conversation that's been out there, uh, both in in, in written form uh, and publications, uh, as well as social media and, and kind of what gets stirred up there. So you're going to hear from those folks. We're going to do all of that in 90 seconds. Welcome back, guys. Let's go. Are you ready to renew that membership or sign up for an NWTF membership for the first time? Well, now we got a deal for you guys. We're going to hook you up with an NWTF trunk organizer. This thing is great if you're boating, gardening, attending a baseball game, going on a picnic. The organizer is a ideal way to keep your items organized and within reach. Featuring small zippered cooler with insulation. Use the packs, not the raw ice. We don't want leakage. Also, the organizer includes three slots to keep items separated and two small Velcro pouches located on the front for quick access to special items with a bonus clipping mechanism on the side to secure your organizer follow the link go through that link to get the organizer with your membership do it now under the visionary leadership of founder johnny morris bass pro shops and cabela's is leading north america's largest conservation movement 
Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear. We're at the 12th National Wild Turkey Symposium. I got to slow down when I say this because there's a lot. And I want to, I'm like pre-disposition to say annual, but it's not. This is an every five-year gathering and we're two years off the mark Yeah. because of COVID. Apropos, our guest, but we're sitting with Mark Hatfield, Zach Danks of the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, and we're going to talk about that very thing. Yeah. So, uh Thanks, Fred. So again, uh, Mark Hatfield, NWTF, uh, Director of Conservation, um, and really want to take this opportunity. You said, you know, we're at the symposium. We are, um, we're off a little bit because of COVID, you know, and we know COVID impacted us in several different ways, both on, you know, personal and private matters and work, travel and everything else. And so really, we, we should have had this symposium last year, but we had to delay it. So, but now we're in Asheville. We've got about 150 registered attendees here this year. So, I mean, it's it's a it's a great event. And so, we're trying to take this opportunity to sit down with a lot of the people that are talking, the research that's going on. And so, we brought Zach in. I've known Zach for several years. Zach uh, is a member of the NWTF Technical Committee, but he actually presented a paper this morning on the effects of the COVID pandemic on 2020 spring hunting across the United States. And this was a Zach is the spokesman because he had a lot of uh, authors and co-authors on this paper. But Zach, you know, it's uh, thanks for being here. And really, you know, just uh, take a time to introduce yourself a little bit. And then we'll jump right in. If really, why why did we need to know the effects of COVID on turkey hunting? And, and what are the major implications for that? All right. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. And Fred, it's really, uh, really good to be talking to folks. Um, yeah, this paper was... Uh, it was a treat to work on, I'll say, just because of the collaboration it involved. I mean, my co-authors were um, counterpart turkey biologists in North Carolina and New York State, Kansas, Mississippi, um, and of course, Kentucky for me. So we, we spanned a pretty good chunk of the country. And um, that was important, uh, I think, for as we worked up the data that we collected to make sure we kind of kept those regional perspectives in mind. And and 2020 was just, you know, it was it was such a <laughs> it's, it's been such a landmark for all of us, uh, I think. <laughs> and we knew more people were in the woods and were hunting harder. But this was really a way to to try to quantify that and put some you know, reasonable, reasonable, uh, documentation of that so that we knew we could say specifically what happened. Here's, here's our measure of what happened in 2020, this very unprecedented year in order to hopefully down the road, be able to do similar assessments. I mean, this is similar to kind of what we do at this, at this symposium every, when we meet every five or so years, Mark is in, is involved uh, with the effort to tabulate 
turkey populations and, and lots of variables about hunting and hunter numbers across the country. And this is like a little mini microcosm of that effort in a way specific to 2020 because it was so unprecedented. So, yeah. so with that, I mean, so <laughs> it takes a lot of time to kind of pull all this information together. Yep. You know, it's uh, comparing stuff across the country. And again, COVID impacted us. I mean, there were travel restrictions. There were county restrictions. Every state managed this differently. We all had to manage through this differently on our, you know, both professional and personal lives. But why was that important for the agencies to understand? Why? why what? Why did we have to get that information from your standpoint, from the management standpoint, to to understand if there was an increase, decrease, or if it stayed the same as far as harvest or even effort? Well, absolutely. It was the context of the situation is is turkey population trajectories in recent years, which unfortunately has been downward Mm -hmm. in a lot of states. And so there's all this uncertainty, unease amongst our our stakeholders, our hunters, our NWTF members, um, our agency folks. You know, we all uh, are dealing with this new reality. Uh, We're not in a time of populations growing, you know, hand over hand, year after year. And, you know, more and more people are are hunting and experiencing turkey hunting. But things are changing. You know, it's it's really hunters are starting to report they're, they're not hearing as many gobblers every spring. And it's just the the context of now where we are. Uh, it's really important to, again, get some numbers about 2020 because part of the fear, as we realized what COVID was going to mean, there was a lot of de- uh, conversation and debate in the turkey world about, you know, are, are we going to hunt too much over harvest? Right. I put too much pressure on these populations that have been struggling and they've been struggling because we're not uh, the reproductive success in turkey populations isn't what it was 10, 15 plus years ago. Right. And so if we're not producing more poults that are recruited into our gobblers of the future, how can we, can we sustain a surplus of hunters in the woods? Yeah. That was the big concern really. Yeah. So when you think about it from a agency standpoint, Mm -hmm. you, you have the, you understand that there's a certain number of people that are in turkey hunt. You know what your license sales are for the most part, you know, kind of an effort that the hunters put out, but so to kind of boil this down is we were afraid and you, and then you set bag limits based on harvest, hunterable, I guess, harvest success. Mm-hmm. And so the concern was we have this extra time on our hands. And so we were able to, you know, people weren't going to the offices. They weren't having that tug for work. They were right. closing things down. And, and so they actually had more opportunities to go out and hunt. So we were worried that not only the hunters that we had, I'm going to hunt more, but it was also people that were like, man, what am I going to do? I've got to get out of the house and I'm going to jump into the turkey because, man, it looks cool. I want to try it. A buddy that's going to take me. And so it was this really the perfect storm for us because it happened right at the start of many of the turkey seasons or or just, you know. It's really the first season to be impacted. Yeah, I mean, you know, where we could really take the temperature and see what is this going to mean? What is the pandemic going to mean for this pursuit, which, you know, that's really important for agencies because we're in this time of uh, of declining license sales. Unfortunately, there's a, there's a growing disconnect between traditional right. consumptive use, <laughs> which that is, I think a lot of us grew up with. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but how do we overcome that? Right. Know? And then it's that fine line of how much we need people to go out and hunt. We want people to go outside and fish. And but mm-hmm. we were 
we weren't expecting this. Typically right. these things occur gradually. Yeah. Either eat, you know, decrease or an increase in hunting or fishing participation. And this was just a snap Short of the pulse. fingers. I right. mean, just, uh, just a blip on the, and we were like, Oh no, what's going on? But yeah, actually conversely it, if we probably saw some states that didn't have the same number of turkey hunters because right. many states said, hey, we're not going to allow non-residents to come into our state. So was that part of your all's process to figure out those states that were impacted as, Absolutely, on yeah. a positive or you know increase or decrease? Yeah, we, we definitely asked that of our survey participants, which were the, if I didn't say this earlier, the state agency turkey biologist. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we asked that, you know, what was the status of your state? What was the nature of the COVID restrictions? that were being enacted in your state where you, did you not really have any restrictions where you, was it just about COVID and human uh, people gathering travel restrictions, or did it specifically say, you know, we, we're going to limit hunting to mm-hmm. residents or we're going to limit access to public hunting areas, you know? So we, we really wanted to get a picture of that to see how things varied. And, you know, even in states that didn't have a lot of restrictions, like on travel, for example, uh, the Western states specifically, or destination turkey hunting states, where you can get your Rio, your Merriams, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they saw declines probably because a lot of people in the in other states uh, weren't traveling as much. Right. I mean, no, nobody was telling them they couldn't, but they were staying home. because well, they, just, Yeah, because it was an unknown. Yeah, yeah we didn't totally know what unknown, was going on. Right. I mean, we were some scary stuff. If you think back to the, the level of mortality we were seeing in New York City. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, the, that was so scary. And so you had some people that probably didn't go out. But, I mean, what's safer or more, you know, from a... COVID transition standpoint than the open air. So mm-hmm. it, it obviously was really appealing to folks. So again, I think it was important to document the level of increase. And right. so that's where, when we surveyed these agency biologists who have long-term data sets, we were able to really, we saw it to compare how 2020 differed from the recent past, right. you know, so. And it wasn't to, we weren't utilizing this point in time, the agencies weren't. And again, I'm colleagues with many of those that, they weren't utilizing it to change recommendations on a, they, this was just to document what was going on to exactly. understand the trend or the mm-hmm. event. Right. It's like a, and then to kind of, we aware of that. Now does it repeat itself year after year? And then that would drive some decision points of the agencies. So right. it's not to be a knee jerk reaction. It's just, Hey, we needed to understand this and we needed to document it because it's unique. Absolutely. Yeah. I think anytime that we can, we can, pool our collective knowledge and get lots of smart people from a wide geographic area together assessing things. That's important. And so the novelty of COVID sort of instigated it, but it's an important reference point. And so um, if we can replicate this type of analysis in, in coming years after we've had a chance to see maybe how sub- 2020 and subsequent years have impacted the population, then we can maybe even gain some more inference, you know, right. so it's, um, we were, we were really just trying to provide that reference point moving forward. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, cause mm-hmm. I think we all understand, or we all see, saw how COVID impacted our daily lives. You know, I, I was, I was becoming a math teacher for my nine-year-old son, yeah. you know, <laughs> I was That's having right. to do homeschooling yeah, and, yeah. and, and I was, you know, probably not doing it very well. Um, but then I didn't get to travel. You know, I didn't get to travel to some states that I typically went to. You know, and Fred, I don't know if you did if you travel much during the spring or not. I, I went, ended up in Nebraska and I had no no clue. Well, not 2020, 2021. So 2020, everything. Yeah. It, yeah. I live in the Northeast. So I was part of that 
right. chaos that was going on right. up there. A couple of things that come to mind is, you know, as you're talking about you and, and Mark now and, and that just thinking about how you're pulling off these studies and, and gathering these data points. And immediately, you know, there were some states that let turkey hunters forego their registration process. Mm. So was that a challenge? And, you know, when you're trying to get as close to the accurate number, like how was that for, for managers where they weren't registering and or you went from a state mm. like New Hampshire that didn't have a, uh, a an e-reg uh, system in place and, and by by necessity had to put something electronic in, mm. didn't know if it was going to work, gave people the option. I just wonder how many people uh, were were their integrity uh, mm-hmm. was checked oh. during that time. Right. Did they follow through? I think most people probably did. And then for some of the states, I think Maine uh, said, said yeah, forget it. Just go do your thing. It's all in the honor system. So, yeah. I, you know, that's a good question. It's, yeah. it's tough to, to quantify. It is. Yeah. Accurately. Right. And admittedly, I probably can't speak to that too much because no. it would be state specific. Sure. And, um, I guess my own bias perspective, we've had electronic you know, license buying, registration, and, and harvest reporting for several years in my state, but there are still states that, that use, I mean, actual physical paper tags. Yeah, where you actually had to go to the store and right. check things and so in. So if you or- couldn't in that moment, that would have been disruptive. So that's a that's a very astute question I can't really speak to. Sure. I'm sure that if uh, if we drill down, and, and hopefully somebody would look at that, because that's, again, what that points to to me is the very real uh conundrum or issue that I see as, as one who uh, collects data, wants to analyze data and make the most sense of it we can, is that when we have different different types of data gathering, you know, it's mm-hmm. messy. It's not the same in state to state. It makes comparisons really hard. And sometimes it calls into question the inferences we gain after the analysis. You know, there's just going to be some things we're limited on, but I hope that in future you know, things are moving so electronically. This is how we live these days. Yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time on this. Uh, <laughs> the average person does more than on a, a desktop right. at home. You know, we. Uh, well, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting point because this actually may drive. Right. Um, exactly. Some better behaviors because people are more adept to using technology, their phones right. or an iPad or a computer to turn things in or to collect information. I you hope know, so. it, it's right. You know, now, you know, m- many people are ordering food off of apps that would say, oh, no, no, I'm only, you know, so they're utilizing this technology. So it actually, if we're able to to stay ahead of the curve, we actually may be able to get better data out of this oh, as from an agency that, that then allows you guys to have better information to better to make exactly. stronger or more succinct recommendations so we can respond quicker. Right. And that's just what I was going to say, response rate. That's something we see, you know, when scientists across the country studying, you know, anytime folks do surveys nowadays, the response rate from people is, is getting worse and worse. Mm. And that's, that's tough because it makes our confidence in the results less. So I hope like the listeners of, of this podcast, NWTF members are, are hardcore turkey hunters, enthusiasts, you know, when your state sends you a survey, you know, fill that thing out. If, if you get it by email or text, mm-hmm. or maybe the state uh, requires you to, you know, <laughs> It gives you the opportunity to provide data. Do that because we need to know. You know, I'm hoping that with the technology will come people being more comfortable uh, providing the information, especially given turkey population trends and and being more willing to provide their information for the greater good because we're all concerned about turkeys. So you so you all ended up you you and your co-authors, you surveyed all the states Mm -hmm. and then you 
they had a pretty good response rate. I mean, I think you said it was over, what, 47 states? 47 states, yeah. 47 mm-hmm. states responded because they were all kind of connected in this network of, hey, what's going on? We all need to be aware of this, and we mm-hmm. all collectively need to share information. Right. Um, what were the big takeaways that you saw? I mean, not to get in specific to the details, but were there trends that you saw, like something occurred or something that didn't occur that we thought was going to happen or you guys thought were going to happen? No, really, uh, you know, in, in presenting it, it's it's almost like uh, I didn't want to come off as underwhelming, but it, it really, again, it, it confirmed what we what we knew. Some states had have good data and information on exactly, you know, how many hunters they have. In my state, for example, it's a little complicated because we sell licenses, and your license type might give you the privilege to turkey hunt, but you might not actually. Okay. So the what one thing we did learn is that. Um, some variables had more states worth of data than others. So harvest is something that almost all the states estimate. So we felt good about that. Uh, participation was maybe a little bit less. You know, we know license sales, but we may or may not know um, folks that are license exempt in some states or right. the number of turkey hunters, again, because some have the privilege, but they don't actually do it. Or, or uh, you know, efficiency or take catch per right. unit effort. That's something we biologists look at just because more licenses are sold and hunters are in the woods doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be more efficient. You know, right. there's some diminishing return there of too many folks so, in the woods or yeah. novice hunters. So thinking back through that, you know, so would you say that we saw that overall on average, we saw an increase of harvest yes. over that, that 2020 time period? Right. We did. We saw increased harvest increase license sales, increase hunters, increase hunter effort. So that's days of field. Uh, so so hunter effort the, from the agency mm-hmm. standpoint is days of field or hours of field right. that they spend chasing birds. But mm-hmm. you didn't see that they got, were any better at killing turkeys, right? That's right. That's the one metric that, that was a uh, big decrease across the board. And that's again, catch per unit effort, how efficient folks are for the given amount of time they spent in the woods. So if, you know, if that had increased, so that would have meant that we got more folks in the woods and proportionally we're killing way more birds. And that again speaks to those concerns that underlie everything, you know, going into 2020 was concern for turkey populations, you know. And so I think I'm I'm hopeful, this is a stretch. We can't really say this with our data again, and we didn't seek to, to, to quantify how these the 2020 year affected populations, because we couldn't do that. We can't do that with just one year data, but I do hope that it bodes well, meaning we had more we had more birds killed because of more folks in the woods, but we, we didn't kill, I don't wanna, I hesitate to use the term too many, but you see what I'm saying? Right. It, Maybe that- It wasn't disproportional di- exactly. and, to their effort. Right, and we won't know that for sure. That's sort of a stretch on my part, but that's my hope, I guess. Yeah. That's my crossing and so, fingers. And then so uh, subsequently, mm-hmm. we need to figure out, did we retain some of those hunters? That's true, you that's know, a good point. Mm-hmm. Because if not, then it was just a blip and people, and then they walked away from the activity. Yeah. So that's, Again, as I'm listening, that was one of my other questions is, is what's your plan going forward for a follow up study on this? Do you have a block of time that you're going to look at for the next two, three to five years and see if there is a trend? And if you did actually retain a percentage of those folks that self-identified as new hunters? That's a that's a really good question. And I guess I would say that 
you know, we're also stoked to be at this symposium that <laughs> we only get to do every few years. So hopefully it'll only be five years before the next yeah, one. Right. And in yeah. that intervening time, we can get a plan for, again, yeah. some sort yeah. of subsequent follow-up study to, to look at these same right. types of variables and, and get at some of that, maybe some other variables too. Yeah. And then you also mentioned too that, you know, I know I was a part of helping craft a, a manuscript with Michael mm-hmm. Chamberlain and Brett right. Collier on the status update of the wild turkey. And we're going to hear about that with, with uh, Dr. Chamberlain and Dr. Collier later but there were some similarities from what you all saw you know we right. saw decrease we saw some decreases in harvest mm-hmm. and the hunter numbers in the 2009 data 2019 data that we used or it's on 2009 right because your data stopped at 2019 we, yeah right? we stopped at 2019 because we were supposed to have our symposium <laughs> and we're like oh no we didn't have the symposium we need to know this information so we invited that paper to come in mm-hmm but we were seeing a decline in harvest and, and hunter, but then we saw an increase in your results, which was the immediate year after. So right. it's going to be interesting to see how those, do we retain those hunters? Right. Um, but it's also, you know, like I said, I, we brought it in very early on to the conversation that the states are now not looking at this one time event as a decision point to adjust regulations. If we're seeing regulations, and, and I'm making some assumptions here, but if we're seeing regulations coming down the pike now, it's because of some long-term trends and monitoring that we have seen, and it's exactly. just not a knee-jerk reaction to the spike or increase no, in COVID activity. Definitely not. No. You know, so it's not we're we're ripping the bandaid off. It's this was a concern. Mm-hmm. It's information we needed in the bank, but it's not. We're not overreacting to that one year. We're we're being very cognizant and consistent with the year prior information to say, mm-hmm. let's make a change, but let's also maximize opportunities for people to hunt. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good, important point. I mean, in context, this this was interesting information, but you know, states aren't making adjustments based on 2020. It's just, it was an interesting novel year that we we all lived and they through. just kind of co- they just kind of correlated right on right. top of each other. Well, we we actually saw how the people if they have more time on their hands and hunters, they're they compete for time. You know, mm. we have in our age bracket we have kids that have t ball and just <laughs> yeah. whatever activities in That's the spring. Exactly right. So yeah. you know. This gave us a, a respite from that. Not that we, we love doing those things, but it competes with our time for turkey yeah. hunting. So we kind of demonstrated that. Boom! Yep, they they. If I have most time, it, I'm gonna I'm gonna turkey, turkey hunting. hunting, right? You know, so, so which begs the question, and, and certainly it's a topic I don't shy away from on this program, and the audience is well aware of it. But I think it's a natural forty thousand foot question when you're talking about this: is what is our carrying capacity? Hmm. For hunters, not the carrying capacity of turkeys on the landscape. And they touched on it this morning. It was yep. it was brought up and it's a it's a fair question. And, and when you're in the business of R3 and, and retaining mm-hmm. and reactivating and recruiting like those are that's all great stuff. And it, it helps us all as in a nonprofit space in the agency space because we want to see people on the landscape. But what is what is that number? And I think this is going to lend itself likely to at least starting to answer that question because the way this conversation goes on this program is we talk about the 10% that's committed that hates our guts, right? It's always going to be anti-hunting, anti-trap, whatever it is, they don't want us to do it. And then there's, I think the number's like 4.8% participation across the entire country, mm-hmm. right? In all 50 states. Yep, right. We're not even at a full 5%. It was, I think when I was going to college, it was like 7.6 or 7.2. And like, and that was a decade ago. Right. So, you know, we're 
fallen off but like okay do we get a do we want to get back to that level or do you want a good 10% or is 10% too much right at least have 10% that are advocating for what we do yeah, it's and a, that right. believe well, in what we do uh, you know personally i think you know Becky Humphreys our NWTF co-CEO she mentioned today i think we can always judge success and and we're getting off the topic of the, this paper exactly but People want to hear birds. People want to have the opportunities, but people do want to have less people in the woods. That's true. Because yeah. they just, they want to, they, have, they want more turkeys, less hunters, mm-hmm. you know, because that's just how they're, def- many people, I won't say all, many people define quality hunts. Right. And so, you know, cause we even saw some states that limited access, mm-hmm. you know, yep. with the survey right. that you all did that right. said, Hey, you can't come to this. You yep. can't go do that. You need to or access this public. Property. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was a very, um, I, I don't know, just tumultuous time, you know, sure. that wh- what do we do? So that's a good question, Fred, because I don't think we know, I think as we are continue to be pressured with, you know, time, it may self-regulate again. And it probably will to some some different variable than what it was before, because I don't think we're ever going to go back to normal, you know, uh, just because, you know, we've we've had two years of habits that we've created as a, as a individuals. And so it's going to be interesting. But um, it, I, I think it's really important to understand that. Um, the agencies were concerned. They're being proactive to make mm-hmm. sure to figure out, hey, well, let's just collect this information. Mm-hmm. Let's not be reactive, but then let's um, know what occurred. So we're informed. Right. Because ultimately the agencies want more opportunities, more people to hunt and have quality hunts on the quality landscape. Hunts, yeah. And we want to have turkey populations that are you know, at levels that can sustain sure. demand. And so that's the question. It is hard. You know, some states issue permits. They they have a limited number of permits and tightly control hunter numbers. Others, by tradition or because their numbers are strong enough, they don't limit the number of tags given out. Yeah. And some of that is, is tradition and some of that will be hard to change. But I guess I would say that, you know, we could see changes in, in uh, those types of things in coming years. And hunters uh, would hope that that percentage four or five percent, whatever, would understand the challenge that we and the agencies face because we are you. We are part of that four percent. Mm-hmm. We are hunters and we want the most quality experience in every state. We want the, the highest quality experience with the wild turkey that, that can possibly be provided. But there's a lot of uncertainty. So totally. And it's so. in it to think about what you've done with this research in this paper and what you presented on and that I'm tying a couple big picture items together, but they, they absolutely go together. Um, and I think what it could potentially show and bear out is if, okay, if it's like we said, if this was a blip and you don't retain those numbers and you kind of know what you're dealing with, but if the numbers are there and people are into it, which is great, we want them to be into mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have issues with, uh, access, right? Sure. So like it, yeah. you, you put all these people in the landscape, there's not enough wildlife management areas. Like new, again, I'll keep going back to where I live. If it's not posted, you can play on it in the top three states. Right. It's not lasting, right? Because this is going to change, unfortunately. But everywhere yeah. else, it's... Oh, yeah. There You have access issues. Of. So it's like you... So what I'm saying is 2020 gave us an opportunity to look at this and say, okay, this is what this looks like with this many people. Right. That's true. So yeah. I, it's, it's, it's yeah. fascinating to me. And from a, a kind of a layman's uh, point of view that, you know, it gets out maybe Saturday and Sunday mornings if, you know, if 
you have Sunday hunting, you can get out before you go into the office. Mm-hmm. Like when you're when you're battling the clock and you're battling access, and now you're battling more people on the landscape. Yeah, um, yeah. there's a lot yeah. to think about. Yeah, and, and we needed to know what that extra time did. Yeah. What were the behaviors and what were the habits? So, well, Zach, this has been great. Fantastic. Again, um, we could go another hour. Yeah, I mean, we've yeah. got we've got a lot of topics we're going to hit here <laughs> through the symposium and. So, Zach, I appreciate you coming in and, um, you know, just really kind of presenting this information. You know, this stuff is um, it's important. We've got Like I said, we got about 150 people participating in the symposium, all trying to figure out what's going on with wild turkeys. So it's all pretty exciting. I think we Absolutely. got a guest at the door. Yeah, we got a yeah. guest at the door. So Zach, thanks so much for coming thanks on so the much, guys, for having me. Yeah. On. I really yep. appreciate it. Yep. Thanks. Up next on the program, we welcome in Adam Butler from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks talking about. Go ahead and take it, Mark. So uh, Adam's going to talk about connecting behaviors and experiences of spring turkey hunters and success and their success. So this is actually a paper you just presented at the symposium, Adam. And I know you had a co-author on that that uh, did all the heavy lifting for you. So we won't we won't really downplay yeah. that too much for you. Well, I, I, uh, Dr. Guaming Wong, a lot of credit there for for some of that. I I I brought the idea and the data to him, and and he uh, he did his mastery to okay to tell us some results. So yeah. so let us understand what was the idea. I mean that. I think I understand it. You you you've shared a snippet of it, you know, twenty minute presentation. But you know, I mean, what what was the idea that you brought to I mean to to investigate? Yeah. So you know, if you're a turkey hunter, you're constantly inundated with a lot of products, a lot of um, technologies, a lot of you know how how to type mm-hmm. stuff. And so I, I think there's like this assumption out there that. You know, a lot of the things that we use now, uh, some of the advances in technology and stuff like that are making hunters, um, making hunters more efficient at killing turkeys. And some of those advances in technology are kind of occurring at the same time that a lot of people are worried about turkey. A lot of people are worried about populations and where they're headed. And, you know, there's there's a lot of anxiety just kind of at large within the turkey hunting world. And and so um we were interested to see, you know, do some of the, the behaviors and the technologies and uh, the tools that hunters use, do they actually, in fact, make them more efficient at harvesting turkeys, which is what most people would assume. And okay. um, that was kind of the, the general idea um, behind uh, what we were looking at. And we we thought we had a data set that could kind of be an end around to get at that question. Um our agency the, or the agency I work for, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks uh, for over 25 years now have done what we call our, our spring gobbler hunter survey. Some states call it an avid hunter survey, which is basically you take a, a, a subgroup of hunters who are, you know, die hard and they go out and they record what they're seeing and hearing in the woods for you. And <clears throat> That's useful to us because it gives us a, a measure of what we call harvest per unit of effort or the number of turkeys people are taking per amount of time they spend in the woods. And you can look at that number and there's an assumption that that number tracks the population over time. Okay. So, um, so that was the data set we had, but we thought, well, if we want to know, do, you know, things like decoys, you know, like the, the, the technology, if you want to call it that, or the, um, Advancements. Advancements. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one to say. The advancements in uh, how realistic decoys are have changed a lot, you know, uh, in the last 
15 years. Um, you hear a lot of talk about uh, TSS and some of the different shot shell um, combinations we have now that are, you know, you, you can you can shoot a tight pattern a lot farther today than you could have, you know, in, in, in 1995. And so yeah. we, we felt like, you know, we want to know, do those kind of things, if hunters will tell us, are they using those kind of things, um, does that actually make them more likely to, to take turkeys? Yeah, so a couple questions there. So one thing to clarify or to make sure we know is this was information just specific to Mississippi hunters. Right. And that's an important point. Not just yeah. it's specific to Mississippi hunters, but also avid hunters. So that's right. um, that's an important thing to distinguish and, and that the hunter group we're, we're, we're surveying are already good turkey. And What's the so, qualifier on that yeah, designation? So, yeah, I was going to say, how do you define avid? Is it somebody that hunts four times a year? Is it somebody that hunts or... or right. What, well, we do don't you, we don't really <clears throat> define it well. I will tell you that within our sample, I think the average number of hunt, hunting trips per year that our hunters took was like 17. So, so that's, okay. a, that's pretty good. Out of how many day season? Uh, our season is about a 48-day season. Okay. So... Uh, they're hunting a lot. So they're hunting a, a third yeah. of the time. Yeah. Third of the so days we, we, of we have a We have a, not to go too deep into the weeds, but we have another data set our, our, that we estimate some of this stuff from. And the average Mississippi hunter goes about 10 trips a year. Okay. So, our, so you all went to the higher yeah, end of that. Yeah. Okay. So well, the, so they're, they're, you know, more likely to be successful probably than that. Dedicated, more consistent. Okay. But it's the data that we had and it's the you know, only data right. we had that, that got down to that detail. So. so it's interesting. We were just talking with Zach with Kentucky Fish and Wildlife about how COVID has impacted mm -hmm. or, or not, not, but just really to document how COVID has impacted or influenced turkey harvests. So this was kind of done a little bit before. COVID. Right. Because again, we've talked about it with them that we actually had to delay the symposium because of COVID. Right. But it, why is that information important to the agency to know? You know, as far as the, you mentioned catch per unit effort, Zach mentioned catch per unit effort or right. harvest per unit effort. I mean, why is that important? Well, from the agency point of view, kind of put my, my nerdy biologist hat on, you know, it's very rare uh, for any of us to know exactly how many turkeys there are over an area the size of the state of Mississippi. Like I can't tell you there's a, you know, to the, to the right. number exactly how many turkeys there are. And it's very rare to have that level of information about the exact number of turkeys. So most, uh, management agencies get around that by trying to track something that we assume is a substitute for the number of turkeys. Okay, so, so it's an index. And it's an index. So harvest per unit of effort is is the number of, in this case, turkeys. The number of turkeys people are taking per amount of time in the woods. And um, the assumption is if that number goes up, that's indicative that the number of turkeys is going up. If that number goes down, that's indicative that the number of turkeys are going down. So even though we don't know the absolute number of birds, by using harvest data like that, we we... Uh, infer what the population is doing. We okay. infer whether it's stable up or down. Somewhere. And then that gives you as a management agency the ability to ensure how you manage, how you right. respond to the right. social dynamics and the request of right. hunters and all that stuff. So right. that that is important. Sure. Wrong, so. But there's an assumption. <clears throat> so when you're using like harvest per unit effort data, <clears throat> there's an assumption in the use of that data that, that hunters are not getting better at killing turkeys over time because if they were if hunters are getting better at killing turkeys then that means they're going to kill more turkeys per time in the woods even if the population doesn't change like if the number of turkeys is static 
but the hunters are getting better at it, they're going to kill more turkeys. So that number could go up. And so if you were just naively assuming that that increase in harvest per unit of effort is because the numbers of turkeys are increasing or the opposite. If you, right. you know, if, if, if that number is dropping or if that number's stable, you would naively assume, well, that's because something about the turkey population, but it, it's possibly influenced by how efficient the hunters are. So that's kind of why right. we were wanting okay. to look at this. Is there something about the hunters that could change over time that, that might would mask or, or influence the trends we see in the harvest yeah. unit effort? So are in Mississippi from the survey results and what you asked, are turkey hunters any better at killing turkeys now than they were before? Well, the interesting thing that we found was that the age of the hunter does strongly influence the likelihood of them killing a turkey. We found that uh, as the age of as hunter age increases, their likely their probability, their likelihood of killing a turkey goes up by about two percent per year of age. So as people get older, they're they're more and more likely to, to kill a turkey. Um, and that's kind of troubling to us because, you know, we talk a lot about hunter recruitment and stuff like that. And we know that we're not, we're not recruiting hunters, you know, at a rate that we're replacing hunters. So that average age of hunters in the United States is getting older. Right. So if older, if people get better at shooting turkeys as they're getting older and we can assume that the average hunter is getting older, the hunter age is getting older. That that makes us think, well, hmm, you know, could there be things going on when we're looking at harvest per unit effort? Could there be things going on with that that are maybe masking the trend? So, but it wasn't experience. I mean, no. And that, that, so I guess, you know, the, we looked at a bunch of different variables. So we looked at, um, decoy use we looked at uh what type of weapon they use we looked at their effective shooting range or what they thought they could shoot a turkey out to uh we looked at age years of experience and interestingly years of experience even though you would think age and years of experience were were related to one another um it turned out that years of experience was not as important as age and Mm. the only explanation i really got for that is that um most hunters or most of our hunters in Mississippi, we know don't start hunting as a turkey hunter. They usually start hunting something else and then they switch over to to turkeys at some point or they they become a turkey hunter somewhere later on. So it could be that age uh, is a like a better surrogate for like overall years of hunting experience and than, so than years specific better, better woodsmanship or that's right so like you know they're just yeah. kind of more they're more comfortable they know what's going on right. they understand where the birds should be or not be right right that's, okay that's our one explanation of that um the other thing that was really neat about all of this is is like i said there's a lot of concern um you know within the hunting community and i think within the the conservation community about the advances in technology and Mm -hmm. and some of the tools that turkey hunters use and you know could that be contributing to some of the things we see and um for the most part that did not come out in our data as as being important so whether a hunter used decoys or not did not strongly influence the likelihood of them killing a turkey okay um you know that we didn't act like like uh we didn't get into specifics about you know TSS or things like that, right. but we did ask them, how far are you comfortable shooting a turkey? And some people were only comfortable out to 30 yards. Some people... And these felt, were the avid hunters. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, and some people would say, hey, no, I, I feel like I can shoot well beyond 50 yards. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the, the variables in the study. And it turned out that didn't really strongly influence their likelihood of, of killing a turkey either. Okay. So 
that's interesting because, you know, I think we, the assumption is, is that all this newer technology or the advancements, I won't say technology, but it's the new shot shell technology, the advancements and decoys appearances and, you know, better camouflage and all that stuff is actually maybe giving a, a, an advantage to the hunter, but really the bird still has the advantage if, as long as you're not a seasoned turkey hunter. And I, I think, yeah. And I think too, you know, what you said in the, the beginning is, is probably important to remember here. This was a study done in Mississippi, right. Mississippi turkey hunters. Yeah, there's it, no other implications we can make outside right. It of may that. not be applicable uh, to hunters in Nebraska, for instance. And, right. and and when I think about it, like think like decoys and the distance you can shoot, that sort of thing. Uh, in Mississippi or the parts of Mississippi where, where we have the most turkeys are heavily wooded, right? And so, you know, you're not you generally are not seeing birds as far as if you were hunting in a Midwestern state that's heavily dominant or something like that. So it could be that in our situation where it's really heavily forested, turkeys can't see as far, you can't see the turkeys as far, you know, maybe a decoy is not that big of an advantage where in somewhere in a like much more open place, maybe it would be. So that that regional application of this may vary, but right. Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, What was the, um, Prevalence of, you know, you, you mentioned you were asking which firearms they use mm-hmm. or, or their weapon. Right. What did the majority of your avid turkey hunters use in Well, not, for, on the weapon, not surprisingly, about 90% of the people use a 12-gauge shotgun. Okay. So um, that, that was pretty overwhelming. Um, one number that was a little bit surprising to me, like, so we put we lumped decoy use into whether you um, always or, or very frequently use decoys or whether you rarely or never use decoys. And uh, only just slightly over a third of our hunters said they always or really frequently use decoys. So most of our group were, were not heavily okay. using decoys. Um, so I, I found that kind of interesting. Yeah. Oh, given the terrain too, I mean, if you're so tight in the woods, it's just, I, I'm the same way. I won't even bother to lug it out there just because you're working on the bird sensibility and just your calling prowess, right? Yeah, and just sure. using that that terrain to your advantage, for sure. And and you know, I, I always I always like to set up on a turkey where by the time I can see the turkey, he's generally in gun range for me. And mm-hmm. and I think you know that's easy to do in a place like Mississippi that's heavily forested. Whereas if you were in Iowa, maybe that no. is a different different situation. And so I think you know again that could definitely make a difference in um, how impactful having a decoy might be or might not be because. You know, if if you're already in a place where you're not going to see the turkey or the turkey's not going to see you until he's well inside 100 yards, then, you know, having that decoy right in front of you, he's already going to be close by the yeah. time he sees the decoy anyway, right? Yeah. Whereas if you're in a much more open country, totally different sure. scenario. Yeah. Do you think there was a, a socioeconomic variable to this? I don't know if you solve for or put it in there or not, but... As you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, generally as people get older, they have the means, right? Turkey hunting, it can be gear centric. It's like fly fishing. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, people that are avid, that yeah. are into it. I mean, we're, we're putting a lot of capital into it, into the travel part of it. So, you know, a young person that's just out of college or high school typically doesn't have the resources to, to fund that, that experience. Right. Um, so deer hunting is very everyday, common day. People get into mm-hmm. it. It's go out there with your rifle, shotgun, sit in a tree, sit, don't sit in a tree. You can accomplish this with very minimal gear. Right. Um, whereas turkey hunting takes, takes a bit to get into it. If you're a gear right. hunt, right. And that's what right. you guys are asking about. So I, I just, I'm, I'm wondering like, 
does a, does a does a guy or gal get to a certain point where they can just afford this well, stuff that's or afford a very, to get into? Yeah, it? that so that's a really good point, uh, particularly as it pertains to the age of the hunter, which we found, like I said, we found age was the most important thing predicting whether a hunter was going to be successful or not, and um, we didn't ask any kind of like, any uh, socioeconomic sort of data, but you would generally think, you know, if you're a, you know, a 20 something just starting out in your, your work, your work career versus someone more established, they're going to have more financial means generally most Mm -hmm. of the time. And in a place like Mississippi uh, where most of the land is private land and most people are having a hunting lease that they hunt on or they, or they have to buy hunting property. uh, As you get older, you would think they're probably better able to acquire either through leasing or right. buying a better place to turkey hunt. So that, uh, we didn't ask that, but that's, you know, one possible way to yep. interpret why age would play a factor yep. in that. Right. No, that makes sense <clears throat> because, you know, and but you did not ask the question public versus private, or was this all private? Um, that was in there, but it, we didn't, we didn't you differentiate didn't, okay. those out. Most, but the vast majority of these, these hunters were hunting on private land. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. So, um, so was there something that really shocked you from the results? Like you, you never would have expected that. And, and that's the beauty of doing the surveys and the research is, mm. you know, you have these, we're, we're testing something. We want to answer something and we go, Hey, okay, let's test against that. And maybe sometimes the answer that we weren't expecting was maybe the most important. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I, I really felt like some of the, the, the things that we've talked about would have been uh, more important in predicting whether somebody was successful. So a decoy or, or yeah, the, yeah. the I, shotgun? I really, or... I really thought that was um, going <clears> to <throat> fall out as an important variable. And I don't know how to explain it. I mean, it could be that, you know, at the end of the day, for the amount of time, I mean, turkey hunting, you know, they're getting like 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 hitting in baseball. Like you're going to fail way more than you, than you're going to succeed. Yeah. And at the end of the day, those those times when you actually bag a bird are so rare that um, a lot of the things it, it not not going to say they're random events, but they're um, they're hard to predict. Right. Know? So okay. I think nationally, I think the number's like twenty percent for a round number hunter success rate. Yeah, it's, on their pursuits, what, yeah. and then it's even less in the turkey space for people that have multiple tags to go out and fill that second tag. It's like under ten percent, and most of those people work at NWTF. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know who same, you're talking about. Yeah, it's, 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 but, a, it's the same in Mississippi. Generally, yeah. like hunter success, in, like for the average hunter in, in Mississippi, it's, it's in the twenties only. Yeah, okay. About twenty five to thirty percent of our hunters are going to kill a turkey in a given year. Do you find it? So I so what I'm hearing is your study bore out that. The technology, the advancements, so on and so forth, um, didn't play a huge yeah. hand. In and, it, right? And, and right, and you got to be a little bit careful because, like, especially when we're talking about some of the the, the shot shell stuff, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of people uh, have very strong opinions one way or the other sure, sure. on whether those advancements in shot shell technology have been a good thing or a bad thing. Um, First of all, I would say, like you like you mentioned, we we were looking at I don't know if we did say that, but we, we were looking at from twenty fifteen to twenty eighteen. Yeah. And um take TSS for instance, there were people using TSS during that time period, but my experience is it's really been the last three or four years that sure. it's it's exponentially yeah, so, grown. Exactly. So we may have been a little this study may have been a little early right. to really tease that piece that's out. That's right, that's right. But, and, and we weren't asking that question directly either. Like we were asking people, how far are you comfortable shooting a turkey? You would assume that yeah. people using some of these advanced well, shot shells are shooting more comfortable shooting further. 
Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's interesting with that because I think with the advent of the shot shell technology, it's the ability to use sub gauge shotguns, mm-hmm. right. you know, but I think the, the line standard is 40 yards and under. Yeah, right. right. And you know, well, and going back to things that were surprising, I was surprised most of our hunters said that. So I, I think, I think 60 or some percent of our hunters said they're 40 yards and in. Right. So, and again, that, you know, whether that is um, indicative of like the average, I don't know. Keep in mind, these are avid hunters, so they're mm-hmm. probably very particular in what they do. You know? Right. Um, but I, that was that was high to me. I, I would have thought more people would have expressed, you know, being. But that also could have been a, a byproduct of the train that they're in, because if right. you're in top. You're going to shoot tight because you just don't want to have a limb in front of you as opposed to an open space. Right. So. Well, Get, getting back to the end of my question, because I want to finish it up, because there's a reason for it. I just want it wasn't like a gotcha thing. Yeah. Uh, a part of me is 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 relieved by your results. Right. Uh, in a way. Uh, and the other part of me and it's something I've been saying for a little bit. And actually, Doc Chamberlain touched on it on his opening piece this morning was that, you know, we just don't know. And right. I know that's hard for people that that analyze data and numbers. And that's that's your life. Like for me. The last few years, it's I've been like, it's okay to say we don't know. Right. And that's, you know, it's, you even said it, like, we don't know how many turkeys are on the landscape from one wildlife management Mm -hmm. area to the next, to the next state, to the next region, political boundaries, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's okay to say we don't know, but that doesn't stop our curiosity and our our advancements in technology to try to dial that in and people do good work and we're finding more out. So like. I don't think that's a, I don't think it's a negative, right? It's right. not a knock. Right. No, it's a, it's not, you know, and I think one thing that we're trying to do with the symposium is you bring all these people in, we share information, we have this network of conversations about stuff and it's an opportunity for us to, you know, challenge each other, think through things, think through things that, you know, we weren't, you know, considering, but our continued thirst is to make sure that the agencies have the best information available because honestly, all the agencies want more turkeys on the landscape. They want more opportunities. They want quality hunts. They want more hunters. And so it's, you know, just because we don't know something or we're not exactly sure of something doesn't mean that we don't care about it. And and we're actually trying to, and I think another part of that is important. And you you heard it a couple of times in some of the uh, plenary sessions this morning is that, you know, a lot of times we have to update the way we do business based on new information. You know, it's not to say that decisions that were made years or decades ago were wrong. They, they were made with a different set of information. Well, they were made with the best information we had available. And that's what we have to continue to do. And that's the scientific sound. I mean, it's, we have to have the ability to adjust as new information comes in. For sure. You know, and we need to provide support for the agencies to do it. And that's why they do these studies like this. So it's what's quirky about people, right? Like take a turkey hunt, for example, that is the other 80% doesn't go well. We immediately amongst ourselves or in our, our groups are like, well, here's why it didn't work out. Here's right. why them turkeys didn't oh, come. Yeah. Like we immediately have to pass blame or identify some quotient, something that makes sense for us to reconcile, get in the truck and go home and be okay with the day. Same thing no, here. Like, if you don't do that, that right? right. Yeah. So, like, I mean, yeah. conversely, like this is uh, as a community, as professionals, like this is this is kind of where we're at. In, like the last two years is we know something's happening, and we have to assign blame. Like right. we need that instant gratification. We've got to have a boogeyman. Right. But it's it's okay to get there in time. Right. And then suss it all out. And right. I think that's the most reasonable way to go about doing business as a non-scientific professional, <laughs> as a just a avid turkey hunter. Right. And I know that like it, it with 
the public gets frustrated, I think, because like the pace of science is not the pace of, of social media. It's not, oh, you know, thank God. it takes a long time to get answers to some right. of We'd all be under and, quarantine yeah, for monkeypox yeah, if it were. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very encouraged, um, you know, being here at the symposium, it's great to be here and, um, see old friends and everything. But, you know, the Mark, you can attest to this. Just the last few years, you know, there's been a resurgence. Oh, I would yeah. say the last decade for sure. But decade. even now, I mean, there's a huge resurgence in turkey research. Uh, and so I think we're we're moving towards answering well, a lot we're, of these questions. We're answering questions. We're asking questions. And, and we're sharing data across mm-hmm. jurisdictions. I mean, we have to look at the, the rigor of the project. This was Mississippi information. But it does drive other questions of, mm-hmm. I wonder if this is like that in another state. Yeah. Well, let's see if we can replicate this yeah. study elsewhere. And so we can create some. And you always think <clears> of that. Like anytime you do any kind of any kind of research, you always like after the fact, think of think of stuff. Like one thing, so we talked a lot about decoys here. Um, all we asked was, do you use decoys or not? Like we didn't split those out into, you know, do you use a hen with a jake? Do you use a strutter? Do you, you know, fan right. reap? No, nothing like that. It was just simply decoys or no decoys. And so I know there's probably a lot of people listening to that, you know, have a really strong opinion one way or another on on full right. body strut decoys or fanning and reaping and all that. And they're thinking, oh, and we didn't look at that. Yeah. We, we didn't break it out to that level. So we got to kind of stay within the parameters of yep. what our data says. And if, if you just say decoys or not decoys, it didn't pop up as being important. Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting. So, well, Adam, man, this has been great. You know, we're, we're day one really of the symposium. We kicked it off uh, and we've got a lot more topics to talk on, but man, it's a, this is a fun one. I, I thoroughly enjoy this. So we're, we're glad to have you. And um, you know, thanks again. And uh, thanks for your perspective on this stuff and really sharing this information. Where can, awesome. uh, if you, if you are active socially and people have questions for you, where can they reach out and find you? Um, yeah, they can hit it. I guess, hit me up on like our agency website or anything like that. We, we, we try to do a pretty good job of putting that, stuff out on yeah. on the web so mdwp.com and then of course all the different social media outlets there so. very good and yep. butler thanks for stopping in thanks yep. appreciate you thanks Are you ready to renew that membership or sign up for NWTF membership for the first time? Well, now we got a deal for you guys. We're going to hook you up with an NWTF trunk organizer. This thing is great if you're boating, gardening, attending a baseball game, going on a picnic. The organizer is a ideal way to keep your items organized and within reach. Featuring small zippered cooler with insulation. Use the packs, not the raw ice. We don't want leakage. Also, the organizer includes three slots to keep items separated and two small Velcro pouches located on the front for quick access to special items with a bonus clipping mechanism on the side to secure your organizer. Follow the link. Go through that link to get the organizer with your membership. Do it now. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear. 
Good deal. We are still here at the 12th National Wild Tree Symposium, day one, welcoming in a great panel of guests, uh, Miss Becky Humphrey, CEO of National Wild Tree Confederation, Cus Strickland, Mossy Oak. Thank you for uh, all you're doing. Some big news came out this morning, and, and Mark Hatfield is back here uh, moderating this panel. Big doings this morning. Big doings this week. Yeah, a lot of good, interesting information. Um, we just sent out a press release. We can talk about that here with uh, some money that was brought to bear and some some projects that are going to be uh, yeah. defunded because of Mossy Oak and, and putting money to work. Yeah, no, Fred, that's uh, that's exactly right. Because we just want to thank you all and, and and the whole Mossy Oak family for really the kind of setting the stage for that initial investment into research for the industry, you know, and so that's a, that's a tremendous first step. You yeah. Know. You know, Toxie's always, he's always, Toxie's a different kind of guy. You know, he ain't going to be on TV and he's not on stage all the time, but let me tell you something, his heart is in the right place and it's all about wild turkeys. And, you know, Daniel kind of came, I, I don't know who else was involved, but Daniel was kind of the mind behind the turkey stamp. So yeah. glad that happened right now. I really am. That's something we're proud of. And and Toxie always back in the day when we were scrapping, we were like, we had a contest so you could stay in the cheapest motel. There was no money. <laughs> and back then, Toxie would take when that revenue would come in, he'd take a certain man, he'd put it back in conservation or marketing or something. He that's just how he rolls. I'm mm -hmm. proud, proud to be a part of that. Certainly proud to be a part of this. I sent Becky a text. Toxie was coming, but we're having the Mossy Oak Properties Convention same days. It started mm, this morning. Yeah. He said, "Cause you're going." I said, "I'm in." So I sent Becky a text. I said, "Look, I'm coming, but I'm gonna sit in the back of the room and mind my own business because <laughs> I've never been around that many smart people." Yeah. Well, well, you know, it's just awesome though. Toxie does. He uh, walks the talk, and he he invests where he really believes in and as he said it's all about the bird and so we are so proud to partner and and make that investment in research so it was a big day technical committee you know all those turkey specialists around the country mark worked with them and and they were the folks that really screened these projects and like i said this morning research is great but applied research is golden because that's what it takes yeah, it really is, you know, and, and having that engagement with the technical committee and, and having an industry connection to that as well. You know, you, you we were sitting here talking and you were talking about Adam Butler, you know, the yeah. turkey biologist there for Mississippi and, and just how much you all have engaged and, and communicate back and forth with him. You know, and those are the guys that are have the oversight of the turkey management and regulations. And it's important for them to for us to engage with them and utilize their resource and, and their kind of their ingenuity to figure out how to, to solve what's going on with Turkey. So we're proud to do so. And so, cause I know I, I did see you sitting in the back of the room, but you were feverishly taking notes, I did. you know, so uh, kind of what's your takeaway? I mean, it, it's an interesting perspective. I mean, this is my fourth or fifth one of these. So I've got a, I, I probably have a different take on it, but I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on really what the symposium means and, and how, how much are, you know, have you enjoyed the time here? You know, Becky's invited me to one before I didn't go. I don't remember who went to it. But when I was sitting there, <clears throat> I was thinking this reminds me of watching the news on TV when you see something going on on the battlefield or something like that. And you, if you keep watching that stuff, it, you kind of get numb to it. 
And I had the thought and realization while I was sitting there that these projects and these people are real. They were just, you know, sharing data. This is what happened and all that. And I was like, that's fascinating. Now, on a selfish point, I was grabbing them as soon as they come off stage and inviting them to come on the Mossy Oak podcast. Because, <laughs> man, Becky's been on there and pretty soon you run out of people to talk to. But I was like, there's a big sea of people out there who are just as passionate as we are. I did a post. I got a pretty big social media following. As soon as Becky got up there, she hadn't seen it yet. Boom. I took a picture and I did a post and I said the Turkey Symposium is underway and they're just sharing data and facts and that's what we need right now more than anything is information. You know, I'm not going down any rabbit hole because people, they'll ask you, well, why haven't we got as many turkeys I don't know. Let's go see what the science says. You know, so and I posted that right out of the gate and Toxie sent me a, t- a text as soon as it went up. He said, man, that's a good post. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, we're proud to be here. And, you know, yeah, we're we're a camouflage company. We have a dog in the fight. But I can tell you behind the scenes, I don't apologize to anybody for sponsoring this or Toxie sponsoring that thing because I know we're the heart is it's in the creatures he's always said it's about the habitat and the creatures you know that so well isn't that what conservation is that's it people you know nwtf members folks that love uh wild turkey and invest their time and energy in conservation of it the industry is part of it the agency folks and the researchers it's it's all wrapped up. That is conservation in this country. You, you know, I get inundated with questions all over. For for whatever reason, I'm associated with turkey hunting, and people are, you know, this year, like, man, I didn't hear many. I didn't. I was like, relax. There's so many passionate people working on this. Whatever's going on, we'll find out what it is, and they'll fix it. Yeah. You know, nothing. This nothing's been on the endangered species list that's legal to hunt, because that's where the, you know the hunters always come forward. Mm-hmm. And we raise the money, we put it in the hands of the experts, and we'll figure out what's going on and we'll fix it. So I'm excited about that. I'm glad I got to see some of it firsthand. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we're glad you're here. You know, you know, you touched on it. I mean, the the investment and, and you know, several of them have said, I'm a turkey hunter first, I'm a biologist second. You know, mm-hmm. they've got as much passion and investment in this in wild turkeys and in conservation because it's personal to them. Yeah, you no, know, it's not. It's not a job. It's it's something that they're committed to, and that's that's what resonates throughout all of the presentations this week. Is I, that le- it's- I learned that firsthand. We had Peg- Becky at our one of our hunting camps in Nebraska. Had the governor of Nebraska up there, Phil Bryant, the governor of Mississippi, and Becky. I called it the Turkey Summit hmm. because I suppose, but I like she rolled into camp. It wasn't no more CEO than WTF. I was like, she's a player, man. She's the first one <laughs> ready to roll out there. And it was we, a good time. Yeah, and we all love it. You know, but that's what makes what y'all do and we do unique as far as I'm concerned. So I think it's really great to see in this one this one collection of professionals, the different Becky, you touched on it this morning, you know, uh, from the NWTF perspective. And I loved what you said is we don't make the rules, but working with the, the agencies and the people that are there doing it day in and day out, they're the rule makers. And, you know, we we all work together and I. A couple other presenters this morning touched on the communications part of it and telling our story and and having people advocate for for the conservation mission in totality, the whole the whole group coming together, not one 
working by itself uh, on, you know, in a silo that we all have these parts together. And I thought, I just thought the messaging in in this morning was so important and I can't wait for other people to hear about that. And it seems so obvious, I think, to us sitting here in the room because we're in this every single day. Every day, all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for, for the people that I think the, the gentleman we had in early, Mark, it's that Mississippi hunters are on average 17 hunts out of 48 days. Right. So for those folks that are only getting out for a third of the year, they're not hearing this stuff or this perspective all the time. So I think that communication is vitally important to kind of bring it all home and say, OK, yeah, you can hit cuz up on Instagram and ask him what's going on with the turkeys. You can hit NWTF on our social feeds. Why aren't you advocating for this? And then, you know, understanding how it all comes together. I think that's just a big part of the puzzle and then kind of completing that puzzle for people to hear this stuff. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure Becky's used to this and the, there's great parts of social media. It really is. And I know cause I can, I can reach sitting down tonight in a chair, I'll reach as many people as we used to on TV, which costs millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and the bad part is you can put people, and I don't get many, but every once in a while you'll get that comment about, oh, I don't know what they're doing with my money. And it's like, golly, man, you need to dig in and listen and see what's going on. You know, that, that kind of aggravates me a little bit, but you just kind of got to look past that collect your facts like I'm doing mm-hmm. with my little red notebook down there and say, man, they're on it. Just everybody take a deep breath and we'll, we'll figure this out. We figured it out for everything else. We have. You know? We have. I mean, there have been so many conservation success stories. Mm-hmm. And the wild turkey is paramount in that one. And right now we're seeing some some things that concern us, certainly, and hunters are seeing it too, but that's where you talk about it and you bring the folks together and you support them and you make changes and, you you, you know, we bring about success. And we used to call them the unendangered species, the hunted species. Yeah, that's right. The unendangered, yeah. because our track record is tremendous in this country. You know, if, if they're huntable species, we we invest the time, the energy and everything to bring those species along and make sure they're healthy and well managed. And I, I wish we had the funding to do it for some of the non-hunting species, too. Sure. But then again, selfishly, right now, there's only so much time and resource. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's tough times we live in. Y'all have your hands full. And, and so do we, you know, because there's. Lots of different opinions out there. And, you know, I, I had all girls. I was telling this to one of those biologists. I said, and I didn't care if they were like super hunters. They, they didn't, but I, what I wanted them to understand is, number one, if you're eating protein, something died. That's right. You know, food comes, and that's just the natural order of things right there. And without groups, and I could talk about the NWTF forever because I was around hunting them when there weren't many. I was blessed to be on that Mississippi River. We had some, but... To see what I met a guy in there a while ago that was on site when they let the elk out in the LBL up there mm-hmm. in Kentucky. We filmed that thirty uh-huh. something years ago, and he was there. He said, "You remember me?" And he was showing me these pictures. Awesome. And now he's doing turkey work, and it's like, see, that there's a hero. You yeah. know that that people that do that kind of stuff, they're the heroes. And sometimes when somebody just fires something off their keyboard and go, eh. Should have thought about that. Yeah. You know? yeah. But uh, I'm convinced, Toxie's convinced, and I'm sure 99% of the turkey hunters in the world are convinced that whatever the issue is, you know, when I brought Adam Butler on the podcast 
for the third time. He's the only one that's been there three times, but he raged through the roof. I was like, I want you to talk about the silent spring. That's what I was calling. He said, because there's no such thing as a silent, <laughs> silent spring. spring. Yeah. And we went through everything over and over and over again. And when I got through talking to him, I felt so much better because yeah. somebody's got to oversee all that. And uh, turkeys is certainly what Mossy Oak got started for. And we're uh, we're glad to be a very small part of what y'all got going on. Well, you know, it's important for all of us. You know, Dr. Chamberlain mentioned this morning that, you know, we need to create more social license and opportunities for supportive agencies to to make the needed adjustments or tweaks within the challenges we have. So that's and there's been a shift between past symposiums to this one is this one has had a flavor of we have to communicate this. We need to have engagement. We need to change the way we are engaging our constituents. And that has not been prevalent in the previous ones. It's I agree. We've gone and talked. We've provided data. They've gone back and worked. But now at the 12th, we're talking about we need to bring you know, the hunters with us. We need to communicate this out. So that's been one marked difference between this one and previous symposiums. And so that's exciting to me because that we're, we're all, it's trade-offs, you know, what can we do? How can we do it? It's all give and takes. There's not a perfect scenario, but we all need to be a part of the process. You know, and, and that's one of the elements I was trying to get at this morning. I, I mean, earlier in my career, the technical folks didn't even want upper management in some of those meetings, hmm. you know, when they talked about it, they felt like they had to have a safe environment away from everybody to talk about it. But the only way we're going to bring people along with us is to talk about the challenges as well as the opportunities out there. And, it, you know, it's science is not one of those situations um, or rarely is it where there's cause and effect, simple answer, you have deploy it and great success. You know, it's one of those situations where you where you learn a little bit, you apply it, you learn a little bit more. They're complex systems. And sometimes you make mistakes along the way and you learn from those mistakes as much as you do the successes. And so it's a learning process as we see changes in habitat. You know, we see population growth in people. We see disease issues. We see, you know, all kinds of variables in the landscape weather changing, weather patterns, the whole nine yards, they all have impacts. And, you know, you can't just turn the dial a little bit, mm. fix it all in one fell swoop. You got to, you got to figure out what's working, what's not working and make changes and adapt and share it and move on. Yeah. I'll be willing to bet you too. Whenever we, y'all here's, we come to a conclusion the population's down a little mm. bit. Whatever the solution is, I bet you 99% of the hunters in the world say, I'm in. Whatever mm. it takes, let's do it. They're just kind of looking for that, you know, that point of light, which is going to be the NWTF. You know, what do we need to do? Let's do A, B, and C. I guarantee you they're all in, you know, because that means that much to everybody. You know, I certainly won't. I got two of my grandsons up here. I want them to, and they've experienced it. I want them to be able to teach their kids. I want them to have as much fun as we had in Nebraska right. and everywhere else. That's why everybody's doing this, you know. So we're uh, we're all in at this point. And I'll tell you, I've been 
I've been floored at the knowledge now. Some of the language gets a little bit over my head. I'm just, <laughs> when we get into wildlife diseases, you get a little, a little. Uh, yeah, I had to keep, you know, shutting my mouth because my jaw drops a little bit. And I said, OK, get a, get a grip. They'll get back on track with you. But it's uh, it's it's been enlightening for me to see how deep into the research about everything, weather, disease, everything. And it's like, wow. We're going to figure this out, whatever we're trying to figure out. I didn't have that bad a turkey season myself. You know, I got a little quiet spell in Mississippi, but we started in Florida with the wounded vets as we do every year, 10 10 days down there. And man, everybody, I took a wheelchair guy, boom, boom, boom. I was driving back home with a grin so big, you couldn't get it off with a crowbar. But now I got a little humbled when I got home. Then I went to Kentucky now. It's like turkey season was great. You know, it really is. And there's nothing like it. So whatever it takes, we got to stay on top of it. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, again, thanks for Mossy Oak just for allowing us to be stewards of your your dollars. You know, I mean, that's that's your all's customers. It's, you know, your all's, you know, employees, hard work. And, and so for us to be stewards of that and turn that into additional research across the country, I mean, that's uh, we take that, you know, very serious, you know, and, and to make sure that we're funding the research that is going to be applied and used. Yeah. Well, yeah. we, you know, we, it doesn't take rocket science. We, we, we do other things too. We started a group called Soul Sportsman Organized for Law Enforcement. And because there's so much out there for the military, there wasn't much out there for law enforcement guys. And when we found out there's three groups already raising money, when we raise money, we just give it to one of those groups because yeah. I already know what to do with it. Yeah. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, neither does anybody else. Y'all got the wheel here. Mm. We just need to, uh, keep that fuel coming maybe we can get some more big brands in there involved and let everybody take part agreed that'd be wonderful yeah that would be nice Mm -hmm. (laughs) so tomorrow there's a a field trip and then another day of great talks and presentations coming up what are you looking to hear when any anything that you came and you're like, I want to hear this. No, no, I'm processing so much. Just right one now. and all. Yeah, <laughs> I've processed so much at this point. I don't know how much more I can get. That to me, it was kind of like the Daytona 500. They rolled out so much. Mm. I wanted to hear right out of the gate. That first four or five hours mm. was amazing. You know, the topics, the people that were up there. You know, I'm sure the rest of it's going to be good. But uh, I've, I've got enough where I can go back and I can do social media. And Toxie wants to download as soon as I get back. That's why I have the red notebook with me. So, uh, man, we could leave now. And I'd say it's yeah. an out-of-the-park grand slam walk-off home run for us. Not for, for people like you and I that sit here with microphones, <laughs> you know, it's you're kind of frothing at the mouth and you yeah. feel spoiled being here. And it's like, wow, things are turning upstairs. Like, we could do this. We could talk about that. And it was Again, from a selfish standpoint, from a podcast standpoint, it was great to hear these professionals, these scientists acknowledge that and say, here we have this conduit to to the people, to the to the public, to the hunters that were that were, that were referenced to tell this story. You're a great storyteller. I enjoy telling stories. And and, and it's not and it's not just stories. It's facts. Yeah. And that's what you like. I like I like facts, I like being able to present that. I was a little intimidated coming up here. I don't <laughs> mind telling you because, you know, not my forte being around this many. And Becky's like, hey, just relax. You'll have a good time. And I did. But it reminded me I went and spoke to this thing one time. I'm not even going to say the group. Very well-to-do group of 
outdoors people. And I did my talk, and we sat down to eat, and my wife was sitting by me. She she hit me on the elbow. She said, you do know you're the only guy here without a Rolex, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I went, yeah, I noticed that. I didn't have that feeling here because immediately after they got through, if I was kind of interviewing them, they talked, we talked about turkey hunting. You know, bam, it went right back to yeah, hunting. They're kindred spirits. That's right, yeah. kindred spirits. There's a lot of that here, so. I felt very comfortable. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a group of turkey hunters, yeah. you know, and conservationists. You know, they're they're doing it because they're passionate about it, but they're doing it because they, you know, they're they're committed to get it right. Yeah. You know, and that's uh, so you're you're amongst a lot of turkey hunters here. That's uh, it's a big family reunion for us, and so we're we're always happy to have you know more people um, with different perspectives joining us. You know, in in these types of meetings because that's what it's going to take. It's got to be relationship building and it's got to be conversations and we got to ask the hard questions and be respectful through the process. Yeah. Well, y'all, y'all are doing an unbelievable job of getting the message out. You know, that was a hard turn for a lot of people in the business because it forever. It was all magazine printed ads yep. or editorials. Then it was television with commercials and all that. And buddy now, if it's not getting delivered quickly to people's devices, they're not going to see it. And y'all, Man, y'all, y'all turned on a dime. Y'all are doing a fantastic job. And trust me, we do well, too. Daniel, one of Toxie's sons, runs that part of it. And I get a kind of peek into that. And you, y'all are doing fabulous. Now, if people don't want to hear the message, can't help them. Oh, but, you're right. But, but they have a choice somewhere that, they listen that's, to. That's right. And y'all are getting the messages out. So, hey, we're, we're joined at the hip. I'm going to do my part. I can promise you that. No so. doubt. Parting thoughts? Well, I think, first of all, I think the field trip will be awesome. And I also think giving all these folks a chance to get out away from presentations and talk more Mm -hmm. is awesome because that's where you get a lot of that communication, discussion on what's been presented. The, The thoughts start flowing amongst those researchers and managers out there. And then coming back together and they're going to talk about population dynamics on Thursday and, you know, mortality factors and the rest of it. So it's, I think it'll be a really, really good symposium. Um, You know, one of the things that folks might not realize this time, but we, we've always published the symposium proceedings. Mm -hmm. And this year, Mark worked with, um, you know, the other, the steering committee members and actually the Wildlife Society, the professional organization for professional wildlife biologists published it as a bulletin, special Mm -hmm. bulletin. So not only is it going to go to all the folks that normally see it as turkey managers around the country who are here, but it's going to go to professionals who work in other fields of wildlife management as a special bulletin. And you know, to a lot of students also that are our future mm. turkey researchers. So that's pretty exciting. And the proceedings came out with the conference. So you can take the actual write-up of these research proposals back. Mm. Folks can and share yeah. that information. Of course, you got to have geeky friends to do that. <laughs> yeah. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, really, it's just, uh, this has been a fun process. You know, again, this is my fourth or fifth symposium. And and to, to be back amongst this group, you know, one of the things when we were planning this, it was supposed to be last year. You know, we, we delayed it a year mm-hmm. because we wanted to provide the in-person experience so we can build relationships and drive conversations. And so we intentionally moved it from 21 to now. Because if without that, 
you're not going to have the same network and the same synergy. So I'm excited. You know, we've got over 150 people that are participating, some virtually, but most of them, over 125 people are here in person. And that's exciting. Uh, the largest symposium we've ever had. Mm. And so there's a lot of synergy and energy right now around research and investment and communicating. So we're just going to continue to ride that wave moving forward. So cause anything from you? No, I mean, you know, I was excited from the get go. I, I was kidding about being intimidated because I, <laughs> although I may not grasp some of those words, I love being around these people. And as soon as I got here this morning, they were soon as the, everything was getting started, I don't know if y'all saw it, they were bringing more chairs in. Yeah. That was packed house and they were bringing more seats in. I'm like, man, we're on the right track. And I sent Toxie a picture of that and he, he, his, his words were no doubt. So yeah. like I say, we're in for the long haul. You know, we just hope everything stays together. We can keep raising money and give it to the people who know what to do with it. And we'll... Uh, figure out the issue if there even is an issue you know there it may be the fact that there's so many turkey hunting right now that there's not enough to go around who knows but you know what the nwtf did such a good job in the beginning from mission day one they kind of outkicked their coverage whatever their mission was it happened mm -hmm. and now we're facing another issue whatever it might be and it's like i ain't I personally i'm not worried especially after sitting through some of this so hats off to you guys yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I will uh, leave one fun remark that I had with uh, Mark earlier that an uh, observation I noticed in listening to them first uh, few folks, Becky included, speaking this morning. Um, I noticed the juxtaposition of, of a regular fellow like me sitting amongst a professional scientist. And I'm sitting next to my buddy, Doug Little from New York. And Becky's hitting on all the right tones and David Cobb's hitting on all the right tones and I'm getting jazzed yeah. like I'm watching a sporting event. I'm, I'm, I'm elbowing him. You hear that? You hear that? And he's just, everyone's very stoic and just listening. I'm like, oh, I, I got I to gotta tone her down a little bit. I'm getting too excited. <laughs> yeah, you're with scientists here. So, because <laughs> <laughs> no. Becky, Mark, thank you all so much for being here. Thanks for all the hard work. Thanks for everything Mossy Oak does and continues to support us. We got a great uh, Mossy Oak cooler bag. Uh, we're giving away with a membership right now. So you guys hear that? Go on there and sign up for your membership. Get that cooler bag. <laughs> sign up. Yes. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. All right. Very good. Wrapping up day one of the 12th. I got to do this so slow. The 12th National Wild Turkey Symposium. I keep wanting to say annual, and I know it's not annual. And so does the audience by now, because I've said this each time. <laughs> it is every five years, with the exception of the COVID years. And, but nevertheless, here we are. And I'm pleased to bring in Dr. Brett Collier, Dr. Michael Chamberlain, and personal friend Doug Little from the uh, unfortunate state. Great state of New York. He's going to be moderating the, no the conversation. <laughs> It's been a good day. Yeah. A lot of stuff's been covered. A lot of, I was joking earlier when um, I heard you guys all talking this morning and some of the initial conversations. <clears throat> I've never been in a room with a lot of professionals in, in this realm with you know, scientists mm -hmm. and such, right? And everyone's very stoic, but I'm not paying attention. I'm not reading like the nonverbal cues. I'm just listening to people's talk and they're hitting all the right cues. And I'm elbowing Doug and sitting next to me like, this is great. Oh, you hear that? You hear that? And everyone's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I better better tone this down, my level of enthusiasm. <laughs> but it was exciting nonetheless. And so uh, 
we get to round out the day with you, you gentlemen. Uh, we're it's a place of all stars, and if I can say so without fluffing tires, I think we got two of the biggest all stars in the turkey world right now, as far as turkey research goes, and uh, authority, authoritative voices in the space. So, thanks for being here. Absolutely, yeah, glad, glad to be, be here. here. Yep, sure. Doug, we're uh, we're talking about habitat selection and movement ecology. Yeah, translocated turkeys too, right? Um, in in both places, mm-hmm. in in um, Dr. Chamberlain and Dr. Collier's work, um, some some really interesting information. Um, Dr. Chamberlain, if I could, I you know the the one note I took down, it, it reminded me of, uh, you know, I went I went from went, went from uh, New York State down to uh, the Delta of Mississippi from my I graduate remember. school. Yeah, and, and how you introduced your first presentation reminded me of me. Uh, but I put myself in the turkey's tracks or turkey shoes. Yeah. Um, being flopped out under this strange place. Yeah. And how do you react? I remember that. Oh, yeah. Yankee coming south. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I That's remember that. Yeah. yeah, we were we were in grad school together. So oh, yeah, cool. I remember those days. Yeah. Yeah. Going from uh, Rochester, New York area to uh, the Delta in it, July. It's oh. a culture shock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. You literally think you're in the gates of hell. <laughs> it is hot. It is hot. So. But um, yeah, I, I appreciated our time together down there, and 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 so now, um, you know, just looking looking at uh, you know what what you presented, what you both presented today, um, you know, just so much awesome information, um, some things that really stood out to me, um, you know, thinking about you know the birds in Arizona, um, the north, how the North Slope was, was so important to them, and. Um, just that feeling out process that you explained mm-hmm. um, when the birds were first dumped out, and and we're talking about birds, right? That that in in, te- in East Texas that you you were um, describing, where they were from completely different habitats. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, could you talk a little bit about um, you know what what you were presenting in mm-hmm. that feeling out process that you noticed that the birds were um, exhibiting? Yeah, sure. Right, right away. Yeah, I mean, states that are still trying to restore birds like. You know, Texas Parks and Wildlife, they're moving birds to East Texas and have been, as you know, for years. And, um, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, it was fairly easy to get source birds from nearby, maybe your adjacent state. And now, particularly with populations declining in the South, it's hard for TPWD to get, you know, a, a nearby state to say, okay, we'll give you 60 birds or 80 birds. So they take birds where they can get the birds and that what that's resulting in is is by necessity they're you know they're having to rely on stock that are coming from completely different landscapes and and it's really remarkable if you think about the bird how adaptable they are you take you know like what i presented today you know those birds came from iowa and you know you think if you've ever traveled to iowa and then you go to east texas and it it could literally be like stopping on the moon difference you know right and yet those birds settled down after a few weeks and acclimated you know and and made it made it work it just speaks to the adaptability and plasticity of turkeys they're just so adaptable yeah yeah it's incredible um and and so in, in the arizona case then they were they weren't going as far they were going from kind of similar habitats um where they were being moved to and from and there was still if i if i followed correctly there was still a little bit of that difference between there, there was a they, they started expanding how far they were moving right after a certain amount of time yeah um most of the the work we've done on translocation science on turkeys has been predominantly focused on the easterns and we hadn't really had a 
any look at what happens when you move Goulds place to place. Um, there, there's been some movements that have occurred from uh, Arizona into New Mexico, and they've collected some information um, with some VHF tags and I think some some GPS work uh, more recently. But, you know, basically it was the, the same approach that was taken in the 1980s. You know, we're going to take the birds out there, we're going to dump them in what we think is habitat, you know, and just move them mountain range to mountain range. And one of the probably the interesting thing about this movement, even though it was only you know, 50 miles, you know, 60 miles maximum, is that the, the proximate response and how far they move every day and how much land they use almost mirrored what mm-hmm. a, a bird from Iowa going to Texas did. But the, I guess I call it the functional response, but actual response was they moved a lot, but they always came back to the same spot after about the fifth day. Right. So they got they they got really faithful to these places that they knew they could sleep because whenever you you know a, a bird and a, a ghouls, but any species that exists in a more semi-arid environment than our easterns do, they are generally you know roosting habitat limited. Right. So you know if you think about the the minimal things a turkey has to have. I mean, roosting cover is probably in the top three, if not the top one, because they don't sleep on the ground except when they're nesting. Right. And usually if they do, they die. So by the fact that these birds immediately got to that point, but still sort of same movement patterns mm-hmm. that we see in almost every other translocation activity is, is really intriguing to how they adapted to this novel new environment, even though it it's pretty. It's a lot shorter distance. Sure, than, you know, fifty Iowa. miles. Yeah, still, fifty yeah. miles versus you know Iowa to Texas. So. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right. And I, th- I should probably take a step back too. I think in in both cases, if if I'm not mistaken, these are these are part of his historical. Um, well, I say historical. It's probably not the right context, but um, tra- restoration um, projects. I mean, these these are we're not trying to you know just try. We're not trying to just um, offset some of the losses. From population declines. This is yeah, no. Th- yeah. These are these are restoration efforts. Um, you know, for areas that just have, um, like with the Gould's case, we're we're still trying to fill habitats, and, and yeah. in East Texas, yes. same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it the two scenarios are similar in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, the Gould scenario is you're you're you've got a, a subspecies that has vacant areas that it doesn't occupy, and it should. Yeah back to where we were with Easterns and Merriams and Rios, you know, 50, 60 years ago, the East Texas scenario has just been a, frankly, it's been a, I mean, it's just been a mind numbing exercise. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's so frustrating. And I know it has been for, for Texas Parks sure. and Wildlife that yeah. you have what seemingly appears like habitat that should support this bird. And, like I talked about today, you know, the the populations should be uniform throughout East Texas, and they're just not. They mm. the, Some of the restoration work has just not succeeded, and the result is you have these little pockets of turkeys all over East Texas, and the agency has worked diligently for decades to try to resolve that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and from one of the things that you mentioned, you know, hopefully it will inform future decisions too. And I'm sure, I'm sure it will and has, um, regarding the importance of openings and open habitat mm-hmm. and, and the non-linear, non-linear yeah. types of opens. Yeah. And you know, that, that East Texas landscape is not entirely unlike a lot of the Southeast, you know, it's densely forested and, and where the forest is fragmented, it's fragmented in a way that doesn't benefit wild turkeys. It benefits yeah. things that eat them. Yeah. yeah. And and that's just, a, you know, the agency's been dealing with that. But turkeys, 
from a translocation standpoint, the agency's been dealing with that, but Turkey's all over the Southeast and Eastern United States are dealing with the same scenario where you've got, you know, these dense forest areas, the openings that are there are not high quality. And the end result is you, you have a bird that's inextricably linked to open habitats where it can see. And now suddenly those habitats are limited and, or, they're poor quality and the cards are stacked against the bird for sure. Right. And East Texas is a, is a good example of that. But I think that uh, uh, Jason Harden, the turkey biologist in Texas and Texas Park, uh, Parks and Wildlife, you know, kind of writ large is also kind of uh, adopted a hybrid approach to some of their, you know, super stocking activities where they're actually not just focused on putting birds on the ground, but mm-hmm. Jason and the state agency have been actively developing and working with uh, cooperative landowners mm-hmm. in kind of a, a, I don't want to say a linear fashion, but a connected fashion throughout several of the kind of broader watersheds there. And it goes back to something that Mike mentioned in his uh, uh, paper and his discussion was, you know, when you put the birds out with birds that are already there, they tend to do a little bit better. Right. And so by kind of, uh, I don't know, putting links in a chain, so to speak, to where the chain overlaps every step through mm-hmm. uh, has been a thus far a pretty successful, pretty novel approach that that is a little bit different from the, the typical mm-hmm. historic take a whole bunch of birds, dump them on the landscape, go the next county over and dump them on the landscape. It's, it's, it's refining how restoration is being done in East Texas. And I think that, that some of the science has actually done a pretty good job at justifying and, and supporting TPWD's decision mm-hmm. on how to do that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at what I presented today about the, you know, the survival of those birds that were, that were released, it's not, it wasn't lower than what you'd expect from the days when we would move 15 birds to a, a property. Yeah. But when you're moving 80, you know, you're, you, the idea is the agency's trying to carry over birds under from one year to the next, understanding that, you know, 30 years ago, we would go, we would release birds and they would nest successfully because the landscape was different. Predator communities were different and production was a lot higher. And now you, you have an agency that is dealing with a completely different beast than most agencies were dealing with in the 1970s, yeah. 80s, you know. So they're super stocking, which Brett mentioned that, you know, to listeners, that's just this idea of instead of taking, you know, 10 hens and five toms or, and, and putting them out on a property, it's it's 60 hens, 20 toms. I mean, it, it's a slug of birds. And it's easy to, to convince an agency to give you t- 10 birds, 15 birds. But when you ask for 80, it's a little yeah. more complicated. And that yeah. what that's done is it and it, it's not and the agency has been very to Brett's point, the agency's been very proactive in how they've dealt with this because they recognize the kind of conundrum they're in. We need a lot of birds because we need to carry over birds from one from the release year to the next year's. And if we release 15, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we need a lot of birds. And where do you get a lot of birds? You, you know, you have to go to the sources that you can get them. And and many of those sources have been well outside of the, the <clears throat> geographic area of East Texas. And it, But again, it, the fact that they any of the, those releases work is just a testament to how adaptable turkeys are. Extremely. Yeah. Very hardy. And and I think late of late, uh, more recent years, birds have come uh, from Maine, North yeah. Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess if, if, if the birds from Maine can get used to it, 
So that, that's where I was just going to jump in because yep. I know that that was taking place and I'm very intimate with those woods and it sounds like it's almost the same poorly managed understory thick forest and man those birds all the way up to the Canadian border are getting after it um, to Jackman and up to you know Fort Ken area there's turkeys yeah yeah and Maine's Parts one of those of states where they're still doing very well mm-hmm. yeah yeah so you have a you have a state there that's still willing to give up birds oh, right? yeah. because they're doing quite well and you know the the, the the sad thing is the states in the south are no longer in that situation. Right. You're not going to have an agency that's willing to trade 60 or 80 turkeys mm-hmm. for some deer or, you know, or ducks or whatever. That, those days of trading animals for translocation are over for much of the south. So these agencies are in a tough situation, even even with Arizona. I mean, they're, you have a limited population of ghouls, and you're trying to cherry-pick some animals and ensure the sustainability of the flocks that you have in these mountain ranges and expand them to other mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. That's tricky. because And other know, states. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's tricky. I mean, it's not like they can hop across the border and load up 100 mm-hmm. birds and bring them back up right now, right? I mean, so, I mean, the, the Goulds is a the super unique situation. There's one source population. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's in southern Arizona and the Sky Island complexes. Mm-hmm. If we're going to move them, they're coming from that source mm-hmm. population. And, you know, every bird you take to Arizona doesn't, or you take to New Mexico, doesn't reproduce in Arizona. And it's, so it's a, it's a, it's done on a smaller scale and, and the stocking activities don't follow the super stocking mm-hmm. approach that's used in East Texas. They're actually, you know, more, more traditional. Yeah. Like, more yeah, traditional. Yeah. You, know, you can't take 15, you know, eight hens, 10 hens, and have, you know, a few jakes and maybe an adult male and you dump them out wherever you dump them out at and they they go so right. it just it it complicates that situation a, a little bit and you know arizona game and fish to their credit have done an excellent job working with new mexico and and coordinating all of these mm-hmm. activities and you know jim heffelfinger obviously and, and amber munig and the the staff out there have done a you know great job in understanding that there's probably some limitations on how many can be shipped over and you know working that out so that they can continued expansion within the state, but also work with New Mexico, which is the only other kind of native, you know, known place where we have it. Yeah. Native goals. Yeah. 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 One of the things that blew me away from your, your talk, Dr. Collier was about the, um, the, the, the availability with the seeming availability of, of roost areas in, in the mountains, um, where, where these birds were being moved, but it wasn't quite so much. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I could take that. So it was, you know, Whenever you think about uh, resource selection for, for a turkey, turkeys are broad generalists, right? I mean, they exist from the mountains of Arizona to the, you know, the woods of Maine, all the way up into the flats of North Dakota and, you know, the, the marshes of Florida, right? And, and so they're, they're really adaptable. So you generally think that, you know, if it's out there and it's generally what they can use, they're going to use it. But then whenever you... And, and again, I think I think Mike would agree with me. Neither one of us expected this. Mm-hmm. When we saw it, we were amazed. But the fact that when you look at almost 7,000 roosting locations over a couple of years from birds that were not moved, you know, we had a whole bunch of birds that were just native and yeah. living their lives out there. And, and a, you know, this little subset that was moved, that 90-ish percent of the time, they wanted to roost on the north side of the mountain. And that means that I mean, not to be overly dramatic here, but that means half of the mountain is not 
capable of meeting that minimum kind of functional requirement that they have. Right. And I mean, it makes sense, right? You know, the the north side is going to be in the shade more. It's going to hold more precipitation. It's going to, you know, it'd be cooler, you know, in theory and and that kind of stuff during the, during the right time of years, there's probably a rain shadow out there in various places and different vegetative communities. But you don't, I mean, very rarely is there something that distinct in what we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in being a turkey biologist and mm-hmm. basically, you know, we do all the fancy analysis and throw the computers at everything. And and then you have to go with our gut a lot of time and say, you know, this is what we think is happening. There's no uncertainty in this situation. They roost on the north side of the mountains. And if it's, they don't roost on the south side. So if you disturb something on the north side and it goes away, they don't just flip over to the no, top. Right. It's just that area is now just gone and it's a loss of usable space. And, and, yeah. and you know, if, I mean, gun to my head, if you'd asked me that six months ago, a year ago, I would have said, no, they probably roost on both sides, maybe yeah. about yeah. evenly yeah. and whatnot. You think about how important roost sites are to turkeys in general. I mean, it's a 20 pound bird sleeps on a tree. They do that for a reason. You know, that roost site is, <clears throat> particularly for toms, is the most important, I think, is the most important point in their home ranges. It's where they gobble from. It's where they sleep. It's where they feel the most comfortable. It's where they're willing to spend half their day, if you will. Yeah. And if you just said by default, half of these mountain ranges are not roosting habitat for turkeys. I mean, you think about that mm-hmm. in the broad context. Mm-hmm. If you if you <clears throat> if you thought about Easterns and just said. All the south half, side of the trees. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. will not use any of the yeah. trees south of this. Half, half of the southeast is no longer roosting cover. It Obviously, that's not the case. But for Goulds, it just speaks to how how specific their requirements are. And, you know, we've known for the western subspecies that roost are more kind of a limiting, very discreet thing. Rios, you know, roost certain places and they revisit those places all the time. And we know that Merriam's. I mean, if you've ever hunted Merriams, you know they're pretty predictable. If you can find their roost, you can kill them. I mean, they, they, they're going to go back to these areas night after night, and then you get over in Easterns, and there's it's a hodgepodge. You know, you have some birds that, that re- revisit areas, and you have some birds that don't. And then you go to this Gould example he presented in that figure. He showed that, you know, with the aspect and basically everything from 90 east and 270 west below that was not used like that's it's pretty dramatic when we when he when he was a graduate student generated that figure and we looked at it it was like damn i mean that's crazy it's like (laughs) i think i think that nick sent it to me and i caught i tested a picture yeah and and you called me right it's like that is crazy i mean if you think about just how discreet that is in their mind that is not root nope yeah there's no seasonality to that no i'm not going over there it has to be north Period, or it's yeah. not roost cover. And, and the, the beauty, if, if there's beauty in the, the lack of chaos in this particular situation, is that it allows the state agency to be extremely targeted. Oh, mm-hmm. sure. In conservation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's, there's no nebulous, oh, we need to create usable space. And yeah, it's, it's specificity it's, here. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. do not mess with that. Yeah. And you're gonna, create more of that. Right. If you're going to do something on the south side, do something other than worrying about. Yes. That Don't manage yeah. for roost on the south side of the mountains. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Which is which is honestly, it's kind of a, a breath of fresh air for some of the stuff we do because there's so much uncertainty that we deal yeah. with day to day. Having something that's just mm. that clear cut right. that has such a 
strong management focus is is nice to see occasionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So does yeah. that make it easy? Well, not easy. That's probably not a fair word. But does that make it uh, available to you to select sites uh, if you were going to move birds around and like you need that? replicated somewhere else here like you can you can now hone in on something that looks and feels exactly like that yeah i Mm. think that i think one of the longer term benefits that hasn't been realized because of this yet is that um we've basically cut the landscape that that we know these birds are selecting for in half Mm. and then within that half we can go in and say okay where within the half which nick did Uh um in the paper are they really using so now there's an elevational grade and a lot of this we didn't get into but you know there's an elevational gradient so there's a window they like to roost in it's Mm -hmm. like 1500 to 2600 okay so there's there's a window there's a there are specific trees Mm -hmm. that they like to be in you know um opinion juniper there's a, a few oak species out there a couple other things um you know, and uh, they want to be in those. So all of a sudden we're, we're you hate to say that we're kind of narrowing in on the sweet spot, but I think that in oh, this yeah. particular yeah. case yeah. we are like, they want to be on that side of the mountain. They want to be, I mean, even if we can say that side of the mountain in, in, the, in between X and Y elevation, this elevation in this type of a tree, mm-hmm. yeah. then you start to cut down what you're looking for. And, and with any translocation, you're trying to, you know, or anytime you move an animal, you're trying to match as best you can. We tend to historically have ignored that, as Mike mm-hmm. alluded to earlier, moving birds from Iowa or Maine to Texas and grabbing a bird, as opposed to grabbing them from, say, Louisiana, mm-hmm. which would be easy. You know, you catch them on one side of the border and you pick them up and you drive them on the other side and you drop them off, <laughs> right? Um, which would be the same as this, but we tend to really have this, you know, okay, they're going to do fine because they're a generalist. But for Goulds, for this particular characteristic, right. they are not a generalist. Mm-hmm. They're a very, very significant specificist. And, you know, I mean, there's lots of stuff that goes on on public land. So if this is a reason, just as an example, and this is not anything that's coming up, but if this is a reason to put a trail, you know, they're going to do an off-road trail out there for mountain biking or something. You put it on the south side of the mountain. Oh, no, right. you don't put it on the north side of the mountain. Or they're going to be doing some sort of timber harvest. Well, the turkeys are going to use those kind of trees within this elevation, so you don't harvest within mm-hmm. that particular spot. And it helps them target. Oh, well, we're going to move, you know, birds from here, this island to this island, you know, the Sky Islands, to try and, you know, put some more birds in this area. Okay, we can't move them here because there isn't any roosting habitat. And that specificity is is something that, you know, we long, I mean, all scientists in all fields yeah. struggle with. I started thinking about it once Nick <clears throat> sent us that figure. It's like, okay, well, now we extract, we go beyond the roost data and we figure out, okay, how far does a bird move on average in a day from their roost location? At what elevation is that occurring within? Now you start essentially drawing circles around these roost locations Mm. and you know with certainty that this part of the landscape is turkey habitat and the rest is not. And then you start thinking about, you know, how how many birds can we, you know, what is this? What's a, a good Goulds population? Well, we know, well, we now know that this is where they're going to be. And okay, how much of that do we have out there? You know, how much is out there? Is is it 20% of these mountain ranges? Is it 50%? What is it? And now, you know, now the, 
the agency has a realistic target. I think if I'm thinking about it correctly, the, the agency has a realistic target for, okay, what percentage of this landscape is Gould's habitat? What percentage is occupied? Where, what's our target? Well, if our target is to have all of this occupied, where are we at? Are we 20% there, 50% there, whatever? And now instead of having these kind of ambiguous kind of releases, you know exactly where to go. Mm. You target these areas, you get birds, you take them there, you release them, and you know if they're going to make it work, this is where they're going to make it work. And this is the distance they're going to travel, and here's how big their home ranges are going to be. Now let's figure out how much more of this we've got available in you know in this part of the geographic range and let's work towards the goal of having all of this occupied. Right. What yeah. does that mean as far as hunting pressure down the line? Then if you can with great specificity identify these areas and that's where you're moving birds to, and now we, there's known populations, does that does that take any of the the fun out of the hunt? If they're if they're so specific, like what does that what does that do? Uh, Arizona has been really proactive with their ghouls management. I mean, the state agency has done it hard to draw a tag. Hard yeah, right, right. Tag. Specifically yes. on the yes. this yes. subspecies, right? Very, we, we know very that. very you know active. They they have a very conservative you know hunting system. You know, um, so I don't. I mean, I, you know, I'd hate to put words in somebody else's mouth, but I don't think that there would be. Yeah, I mean, we're still talking about a pretty big area, sure. right? You know, I mean, a bird that can move 1,700 meters or 2,000 meters in any direction on any day, you know, you're not going to be able to be like, it's under that tree. Yeah. But it, it is um, it is interesting that, you know, for all the species, the specificity is so high. But, but I mean, turkey hunters, as a general rule, they hunt one of two ways, right? They get out in the morning where they roosted a bird the night before. Or they get out in the morning and listen and call and try and get a response, and then they, they move to them. Sure. Either way, they're operating on the same scale as the bird is. So I don't I don't think that it's a I don't think it would increase efficiency any. Right. Um, you know, that's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, and I think mean, about the elevation change. I mean, the numbers he gave that's yeah. a thousand feet. Yeah. Man, <laughs> you'd be humping it. Yeah, right not those, a lot of people can do that. Yeah, I mean, that, these birds can move a lot, you know, more freely than we can. Meters, is it meters? Same thing. Yeah, still be humping it. It's fifteen hundred meters, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. About to change. Fifteen hundred meters is a lot of change. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of humping it. Yeah, 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 for sure. And they do it a lot easier than we do. Oh, for sure. yeah. Once once they hit the ground, they're mobile. They're, they're they're they've got some advantages. Yeah, it's like antelope hunting. If you're not already in front of them, give yeah. it up. That's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, because oh yeah, they will probably use the south side at some point. Yeah, of day. course. If you, you push know. them over there, they, yeah. yeah, for sure. I learned that in Montana this year, and I was like, holy hell, man, it's just. There's just, like you said, if you're not in front of them and they can 90 degrees straight up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Super fast. Yeah. I used to hunt in the mountains of Virginia when I was in college at Virginia Tech and it was really rugged. Hmm. And those birds, you know, I figured out if you're not where they're already going, you have no shot. You're not going to outrun them. And, you know, at that time I was young and in shape and hell, it it was a joke. You know, I mean, it was a joke. I mean, they would just belittle me every day <laughs> and it was always because they could they knew where they were going and how to navigate the landscape in a way that i just didn't know and they weren't worried about walking straight up like yeah. you just said yeah. they don't care no nope. yeah let alone getting in front of those bigger flocks in the fall too right yeah forget uh, it. all yeah. those eyes yeah it's yeah. not gonna happen yeah okay parting thoughts we're 
we're getting to it, and I feel like I could sit here for another two hours. I yeah. know you don't want to sit here for two hours, but I can. No, well, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, no offense. Uh, it's all good. No, no, I need a beer. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, did, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I learned a lot. You know, I always try to think about those things that I can, I can take back. Not, not only from, from the scientific standpoint, but you know, like what, what's presented here that will make me change how I, how I hunt, and, and I now I know what side to start on. If I'm ever fortunate enough to draw a ghoul's tag. <laughs> Um, you know, I know, I at least know where to start, but then all bets are off after that. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you probably see with Goulds and I haven't, I'm, I'm going to hunt Goulds for the first time next year and I'm so looking forward to it. But, but I, I suspect to, to your question, I think what you'll probably see is that hunting Goulds in many ways, even if you knew where they were going to roost is going to be like Rio's on steroids mm-hmm. because you still have the elevation problem. Right. You know, and, and if you've ever hunted Rio's in the Texas Hill Country, I suspect there's a lot of similarities, man. When they start booking it up the sides of those canyons, <laughs> it's ball game for you. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you're not ahead of them, you're behind by a day. So I you know, I don't I don't think even if we pinned it down to the point where you knew with almost certainty they're going to be on the north side of the slope and da 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 you still gotta you still beat gotta them. do the work. You still gotta yeah. beat them. Yeah. You know? In a in a landscape that they're better equipped to deal with than you are, for sure. That's awesome though, yeah. right? Well, yeah, that's yeah. incredible. They're supposed to win most of the yeah, time. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. Good deal. Parting thoughts? No, it's a I mean, non turkey specific, but you know, it's it's always good to come to the symposium. This one's a couple of years late. Mm-hmm. You know, Mike mm-hmm. and I've been coming to these a long time. Um, and you know, it's a couple of years late, but it's good to, to get everybody back together. And, you know, the, I was talking to Mark Hatfield and he said that he thought this is the biggest one mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, it's and, changed so much through yeah, the years. The people that were at the last one, <clears throat> you know, Bill Healy was at the last one. He's not here. I have a lot of respect for Bill. Bill Porter uh, passed away. Is, is, is yeah. deceased. Uh, a lot of the big names in the turkey world that I remember when I was a grad student going to these, you know, George Hurst and Larry Van Gilder and all these guys, these these people that were just seminal figures, they're not here anymore. And the the guard has changed. Yeah. And there's different faces. And it's you, yeah. Bob Bob Erickson, my mentor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just here, the yeah. the people are are different. And and I, I looked out there today, and I don't know if maybe this was just me, but there are so there were so many young it was biologists. <laughs> it was it was not and just you. It, I thought about it at the. At, at one point, I was like, holy crap, this, there's a lot of young people here. And in some ways, I was like, you know, that's that's awesome because 20 years ago, it wasn't a lot of young people. 20 years ago, it was you and me. It was well-established, <laughs> well-established, right. you know, heavy hitters in the field and then a bunch of punk grad students like us. And, and now I looked out there today and I, I see all these young faces and I see all these people that are soaking up information and they haven't been immersed in this mm-hmm. in this what we do for their entire careers, that's really exciting because they're getting the information and they're, they're the ones that are going to move the needle 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. It was pretty cool to look out and see that, that many new faces. And there were a lot, there's a lot of people here that I don't know. And I know most of the people in Turkey world is pretty cool. Like you said, just, Hopefully we see them again in the, in the next one. Absolutely. Right? And then, then, then we know they're just absorbing it yeah. and, and yeah, they're yeah, part of the world. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And what you said just there made me think of something I thought of earlier in this conversation that another conversation for another day and definitely have you guys back on for a longer set um, is considering where I live in the Northeast and where Doug's at. You know, I figure 
mean, you guys can speak to this better, but I, I figure we're probably a decade, decade and a half behind the rest of the country, mm-hmm. right? As far as turkey population, the excitement, everything that comes with turkey culture, like we're still in the golden age mm-hmm. where what's happening in the South is just creeping around. I wonder, you know, what does that look like in 10 years for us in mm-hmm. New England, uh, especially with hunting pressure and, you know, all the different variables and, and hopefully it's figured out because I, I don't want to, I don't want my, my Northwoods uh, to go through what's happening in the South. But again, a, a conversation for another day and certainly one that's interesting to, mm-hmm. to talk it's about. One that needs to be had. Yeah, yeah. Sure. for sure. Uh, but I think, I think people are having it. I think that, the, oh yeah, I think for the sure. response that, that the the issues that the South is currently facing, yeah, and some of the Midwest, um, I think that that the folks in the the Northeast, the big hand wave Northeast, mm-hmm. um, I think that they are and have been extremely proactive mm-hmm. because they're not, you know, and like Mary Jo has been proactive for years because mm-hmm. she's seen. Yeah you know, what's going on. But I think that generally speaking, almost all of them have been extremely proactive because they, they've seen what's happened and they don't want to follow. They the don't trend. want to be yeah. Yeah, yeah. They don't right. want to be next. 100%. So, so there are regulatory changes that are already being tested. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are, you know, conservation decisions and management decisions that are being implemented that are, you know, just weren't in the Southeast, you know, that, that may help, Stem the tide, which I think is the objective. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that the Northeast is probably, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I think they're probably better positioned than the Southeast is because they've got the Southeast as an example. Right, right. We don't yeah, want to go sense. there. Yeah. So, yeah. And you hope they learn from it, yeah. whatever comes out of all of this. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's a benefit of this meeting because it's yeah. not it's not just the, the Mike or the Brett or, you know, the, the graduate students, uh, you know, giving their talks. It's the the one-on-ones or the the group of three of us that are, you know, off on the side talking about this particular issue or that developing the collaborative study Mm -hmm. with, you know, the the Southern universities and and the Southern states and the Northern states trying to all share information and data. And that kind of stuff is, it's unseen at this meeting, but that's one of the benefits of Mm -hmm. this meeting is that we're all here all in the same room for for a week. It's huge. Awesome. Thanks, guys, so much for your time. Thank you, man. Thank Appreciate you. it. We'll with you. definitely do it again. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Have fun. Thank you. Have fun. Absolutely. <laughs>
Um, and I think these are important points that need to be brought brought back up. Um, it's the agencies that, that go about uh, using this information and, and do their very best to do what's right for the resource. So well, that was important to uh, to reiterate and bring back up. But ultimately, there's there's nothing but passion and excitement for this great bird and then to see it succeed and to see its populations do well all over this country. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Part two comes next Thursday and part three the following Thursday. With that said, guys, I hope you're enjoying your summer. I hope you, like I said in the beginning, had a great fourth. Be safe out there. I do encourage you guys, if you are active socially, to be involved with us socially. It certainly helps tell our story. It helps this podcast uh, get out there. It's part of that, uh, that social structure and, and storytelling. So, uh, you know, you can always find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. We have a growing community there that we're excited about, uh, professional uh, LinkedIn. So if you're on there, find us on all of it, follow us, share a post or two, interact, give us thumbs ups, things like that. Uh, drop questions, send us private messages if you got something you want to hear on the podcast. We're not hard to get a hold of. So uh, highly encourage you to do, do that there in the socials while you're at it podcast where you can subscribe or follow uh, please do so it certainly helps us move uh move up the charts uh working in the algorithms five star rating would be awesome as well so subscribe and rate where available we appreciate you that's it guys we're gonna keep it short i had a long end lots of information there to digest rewind this sucker listen to it again play it over for your friends have some uh, insightful discussions um but remember, at the end of the day, this is all about the wild turkey, the conservation. It's in our mission statement, the conservation of the wild turkey and the preservation of our hunting heritage. Um, more good stuff to come, guys. We'll talk to you next week. See ya. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Are you ready to renew that membership or sign up for an NWTF membership for the first time? Well, now we got a deal for you guys. We're going to hook you up with an NWTF trunk organizer. This thing is great if you're boating, gardening, attending a baseball game, going on a picnic. The organizer is a ideal way to keep your items organized and within reach. Featuring small zippered cooler with insulation. Use the packs, not the raw ice. We don't want leakage. Also, the organizer includes three slots to keep items separated and two small Velcro pouches located on the front for quick access to special items with a bonus clipping mechanism on the side to secure your organizer. Follow the link. Go through that link to get the organizer with your membership. Do it now. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear.